Hayes has been exploring the world by motorcycle for seven years now, and he's still going. His motorcycle's changed a few times, so is his gear, but the spirit of the trip remains the same for him. He loves adventure. He loves pushing the limits, his limits. It's part of the reason he's on the road to begin with. Now, at one point in the story today, you're going to find Jeff deep in the Australian outback at midnight, lying on a long sandbar beside a river, alone unless you count the ants and other critters roaming around through the night. Wearing only shorts, he won't be getting any kind of sleep. Now, the day had been spent in futile attempts to find his campsite where his motorcycle was waiting for him. Yet he was actually only getting farther away with each attempt. Now, although he didn't know it at the time, the sand was what would make the difference between another day or his last day. And that's just one of Jeff's adventures. My name is Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. It's wind pressure that powers the MotoBreeze chain oiler. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers the oil to a felt pad on your swing arm. No nozzles near your sprockets. One ounce of oil gets 1,000 miles or 1,600 kilometers. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets. MotoBreeze.com. And Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made heavy-duty luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. You can turn any dry bag into luggage using their strapping system. And, of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse that adventure riding gives it. Tough, reliable gear. GreenChiliADV.com. Best Rest Product is the maker of the Cycle Pump, the best tire inflator for motorcyclists. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. Made in the USA. Comes with a lifetime warranty. They also distribute Google Tech filters. CyclePump.com. I'm Sam Manikin. Ted Simon. Austin Vince. Simon Pavey. Brian Field. Patty Capetos. Jocelyn Snow. Charlie Borman. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Grant Johnson. Jimmy Lewis. Elspeth Jansen. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Uh, uh, my name is uh, Jeff Keyes. I come from London. And I am currently travelling around the world. I describe myself as a a world motorcycle traveller and blogger. Jeff, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Jim. Good to be here. How do you describe yourself again? What what is it? I describe myself as a world motorcycle traveller and blogger. And um, blogger. With, yeah, with regard to work, I'm now retired, I'm pleased to say. So as like that, so the blogging is a big part of what you do? Uh, I guess so. It's, it's got quite a lot of um, people following it. I get a lot of hits every time I publish one. It's, it's not monetized at all. It's really just to, or started out just to let friends and family and anyone else who might be interested know where I am. And what I've been doing. Where are you right now? Well, I'm back in London because I was in India, but my visa ran out, so I had to come back. I'm uh, hoping to get a new visa soon, but 
um, I think India has just suspended international flights, so I'm not too sure when I'll be able to get back exactly. Yeah, this is a pretty crazy time for travel, isn't it? I it mean, is. It's, it's yeah. tough to figure out what's going to happen, you know, next week sort of thing. Well, absolutely, yeah. Um, my bike awaits me in Chennai, so as soon as I can get back there, then I'll carry on traveling. So you've been traveling for how long? When did you hit the road? Um, in two days' time, it will be seven years. Seven years. Did you set out to be this long? No, I, I had no particular time scale. I kind of imagined I would have uh, reached a lot more countries than I have done so far by now, but it just hasn't worked out that way, and I don't really care. What's what's the country count, mileage count, that sort of thing? Um, well, I'd say only 30 at the moment. Only 30 countries? Yeah. Seven years. How many more countries do you have to go? Well, uh, I've got probably another... 10 or so before I get back to the UK. And then I've got the continent of Africa, South America and North America to, to travel through or around. Jeez, Jeff, you're not going to get back home until you're nearly a hundred. Oh, that's fine by me. <laughs> How old are you now? I'm uh, at the end of this year, I'll be 70. At the end of this year, you're going to be 70 years old. So, so really like, I mean, even if you just look at what you've done now, 30 countries, seven years, you're, you're planning on being on the road for a long time still, or potentially. Anyway, do you have family at home? Uh, yes. I mean, they, they don't live with me. Um, you know, they've grown up children and, um, you know, they've, they're doing their own thing. But um, I guess the, the thing is I've spent a long time in certain countries. Like I was nearly two years in Australia um, because it's a big place and it's worth the time spent there. I've spent a lot less time in, in men, most of the other countries. Um, I guess I, once I've finished getting around India, I will move through all the others fairly quickly and then the other continents also fairly quickly until I get to North America where I imagine things will slow down quite a lot. Yeah, and I'm only kidding, of course, about taking your time because that's what everybody mm. would love to do. I mean, that's the of sort course. of the, the ultimate, isn't it? And and being retired, obviously, you have some sort of pension or at least some way to to finance your trip. That's many people's dream to be able to do that. Just it is, and I, yeah, I I know I'm I'm very lucky. I've been also reasonably well organised, to be fair uh, to myself. Um, but yeah, I am I am very fortunate. Well organised. Yeah, I mean, I made sure that I had a good pension. Um, I kind of, it's hard to say when I envisage doing this kind of thing. I suppose way back in the 90s or even maybe the 80s, I had a, an inkling, um, you know, that the seed is planted when you read Jupiter's Travels, isn't it? For, mm -hmm. Probably for many, many people. And, and then the various other books, TV programs uh, and so on that just makes you say, well... I want to do that and I want to go there. And eventually you make the decision. And you left, uh, I think, 2014, right? Correct, yeah. I, I saw a photo of you leaving. And I don't know, who's standing around there watching you or, or waving to you as you leave? Oh, that was my family. Uh, so your kids? Yeah. 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 And, and your kids wife? Kids and wife. Uh, yeah, see. and my wife as well, yeah. Did your wife stays at home and waits for you? Well, we don't live together, actually. We haven't lived together for a very long time, but I did happen to leave from her house on the edge of London on uh, that day. 
I see. So I guess the thing is then you really are free. I mean, you don't have anyone that's sitting at home feeling like, you know, you're holding their life up while you're exploring yours. No, that is correct. I don't. I mean, I miss, I miss my kids and I, I come back every 12 to 18 months, roughly. Um, my, my next return home, once I get to India, my next return home will be at the end of the year for my 70th birthday. But after that, I don't know. I, I, I won't fly back in until um, for a visit. I will actually aim to ride back in on my Royal Enfield Himalayan. So you you sort of you you said you were organized. You planned this. You retired. Made sure you had the, your retirement coming in, etc. And you were covered for your travels. What mm. was your idea about uh, the trip when you left or before you left? Well, the the idea was simply to get to as many places as I could before I either uh, had been everywhere or I got fed up with it because I you know I think you have to accept that. Sometimes the the shine can can go dull, and you can miss home very much, too much to want to stay away. Uh, that didn't apply to me. I'm keen to get back out there as soon as I can, but or or before I died. And so it's just a case of keep going as long as I wanted to and and was able to. Your byline is adventure before dementia. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> I saw that on on the on the back of a caravan and on the back of a. Um, a motor caravan in Australia. And I thought, well, yes, that's, that is just the right line that describes what I'm doing. <laughs> it is. so you, Typical you, Aussie humour. Yeah. <laughs> I've heard it before. I love the line. It, yeah, it's great. It, and you're, you're out exploring the world. What are you looking for? Like, what, what are you after? What are you experiencing? Well, when I left, I didn't really know. I just... Like I said, you, you know, you, you read the books, you see the films, and you just feel that you want to be there. So I just wanted to experience being there. And I found that the more places I go to, the more I want to experience more of it. So it's really just about exploring the places, seeing the sites, meeting hundreds of great people, and just having that great feeling that travellers have about always looking over the horizon to the next place that you're going to go to and the next bunch of great people you're going to meet. I kind of get the feeling from looking at, at your your stuff that you post that um, you're you're somewhat attracted to historical things, architecture, that, that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely true. I, I think um, that there's, especially in a country like India where I am now, there's there's a lot of ancient history to be seen, but also in a relatively new country, a relatively young country like Australia, where there's very little that's older than 150, 160 years, the architecture, the buildings you see, tell the tale of the people that went there and, and their life getting them to where they are now. So even relatively new history is still very interesting. And some of the architecture, I remember looking at a, a photo that yeah, I think you shot in India and it was of, um, I don't know, I don't know what it was because I sort of buzzed by it, but it was, uh, it was sort of a, a pyramid type thing, um, taller than, than it is wide though. And so ornate, so many things carved into it. And it looked like it was just there for maybe religious purposes, but what it was an actual building. That's correct. Yeah. The, the many Indian Hindu temples have 
carvings that relate to, I hope I get this name right, the Ramayayan um, uh, legend, which is the story of the gods, the lives of the gods. And it's a story that's still being written, in fact. So many of those those um, uh, places and the figures carved on them relate to the characters in those stories. So what do you do when you're heading somewhere, when you're going to go to the next country, for instance, or even the first country, for that matter? Do you research it ahead of time and, and look and say, oh, I'd like to see that, I'd like to see this? Yes, I do, yeah. I mean, I mean, at the moment, I'm going around India. It's a big country. So I look up on, on the internet just what there is to see in any particular area or state or town. And I try and visit those places. Um, you invariably meet people just on the road. Um, but the great thing about India, the really, really good thing is that the biking family in India is magnificent. You will always be introduced to somebody else in the next town by whoever you met where you stayed before. So, you know, there's always people to meet um, as well as the places to see. That's interesting because, you know, the, the motorcycle is used for transportation, but, and a, and a biker is sort of, uh, I was just going to say above that, but, but different than that, you know, the transportation, you ride it because it's just a way to get from A to B, but you're describing people who are enthusiasts. How do you tell the difference when you see a motorcycle in India? Well, if it's a, uh, a 150cc um, Honda Hero, well, they're just called Heroes nowadays, there's a bit tatty, a rusty chain, badly adjusted, someone riding it wearing flip-flops, then <clears throat> that's just uh, somebody using a bike to get around. The, the, the enthusiasts who are mostly young guys um, in their 20s, they'll have nice bikes, uh, albeit small ones, but, you know, they'll be often small sports bikes. They'll have a bit of bling on them. The riders will be wearing crash helmets and some protective gear. Um, and, and you can just tell that, that these are people who are into their bikes. And if you go on any of the Indian biker websites, then it's obvious that they're very, very enthusiastic ab about their vehicles and they, you know, they write about them, they put lots of photos on and all this kind of thing. So those are the guys that I tend to meet and spend time with. When you set out... You you probably had a way of meeting people or bumping into people along the way. Has that changed to now? Like, I mean, did you start out sort of forcing it and then have fallen into some sort of natural rhythm at this point of this many years on the road? Um, <clears throat> I found it does kind of happen by itself, but I do rely on sort of bumping into people um, wherever I can. Now, I've met some people, I'm trying to think back to when I left I just bumped into people. I stayed in hostels a lot in Europe. Um, and there's always, obviously there's young people there. I camped a fair bit, so you don't really meet many people when you're camping. But I just relied on on just let the world make it happen, really. Um, Horizons Unlimited, I met a few people from there. Um, but usually, Jim, and I think anyone who's travelled knows this, that what it is that gets you to meet people is is other people's curiosity. They're interested in you, uh, and and they they want to meet you. They want to find out who's this who's this guy. Especially when you get outside of Europe into Asia, you're very obviously not local. You're riding a bike that very clearly isn't 
a local bike so people are curious to know about you. And you're doing the same when you see someone else riding along, you recognize as a traveler, you approach them. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, it's great to pull up at a, a, a tea stall somewhere, and, and even the people there will talk to you. You know, they'll practice a bit of English to say, hello, where'd you come from? And these are just ordinary guys who are driving a truck or whatever. You know, the, the, everyone is curious to meet new people. So where is the adventure? Does the adventure happen with locals or does it happen with other travelers? Well, I guess the adventure is just being out on the road. I mean, that's what I see as adventure. I've, <laughs> I have had some adventures which um, have put me in a bit of a dodgy situation occasionally, but I've always got out of them. Um, I hate to mention the time I got lost in the bush in Australia and had to be rescued. That's a, that's a proper adventure. Yeah, <laughs> I want to talk about that for sure. <laughs> I thought you might. <laughs> but, but you, and you know, it's funny because I heard about that before, like actually when it happened and uh, I yeah. found it a, an interesting story. But, but before we get into that, I was going to ask you about your route because you left first and you, you sort of worked it out in your mind, like roughly where you, where you were going. But if I remember correctly, you, you only made like, what was it? Two bookings, a ferry, and I think in your first um, hostel. And I, and I think the rest was just sort of a rough route. Can you talk about that? Yes, sure. Um, I, I booked, I, I made a decision. So a couple of things led to what route I took. And when I left, the, 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 I had it in my mind. I actually decided to go. Let's, let's wind the clock back a little. I actually decided to go when I was away with some friends in France uh, in 2008. And one of the friends I was with back in 1990, he left the army bought a bike and within a week he set off to ride to, to visit his brother in Australia. And he had all sorts of adventures, including uh, getting appendicitis in the middle of the desert in Iran. Now, mm. I, can, I can swiftly say that wasn't one of the experiences I wanted to, uh, to copy, but it just you know, gave a flavour of, of what can happen, the, all the unexpected. So... I had to wait at that point. I had to wait for my kids to grow up a bit. My youngest was 20 when I actually left in 2014. So in the meantime, I had to think about what bike to use and which way to go. And the choice really, I decided to leave in 2014 and I just wasn't sure whether to leave in the spring and, and you know, head across somewhere, Europe, southwards towards Asia or something like that or to leave in, in the autumn and go to Africa. Um, but I read Graham Field's book, In Search of Greener Grass. I read the Mondo Enduro and Terra Circa books and saw their video, and also The Long Way Around Boys. Um, they went across Russia and into Kazakhstan and Mongolia. So I decided I wanted to go there, and that's what I did. You mentioned about uh, planning what bike you're going to take. How, how much work did you put into choosing a bike and what did you choose? I initially was going to take a Yamaha XT600, but having rewatched Terra Circa and Mondo Enduro, I read the books again, I actually decided on a Suzuki DR350 because it's pretty clear that they were very suitable bikes. And the one thing that was in my mind all the time was I did want to go off the beaten track and for that reason I wanted a bike that I could pick up 
by myself. Mm. And the DR350 absolutely suited that. So I had a bit of luck. I got one with fairly low mileage, about 8,000 miles on it. It was the latest one they made. It was a 99 SEX, which was the last they made. So it had the good suspension and everything else. And that's the bike I left on. The Suzuki DR350. Now, when you mentioned uh, Mondo Enduro and Terra Circa, those are, are films about motorcycle travel. And the one thing that he pushes, Austin Vince, is small motorcycles. You know, yes. and, and just for those reasons that you were talking about. So you, you leave with this bike on the small, small motorcycle. How did that work out? Did you, did you end up thinking that it was too small at any point? Is there, is there anywhere where you went to, you know, sort of against the advice of what Austin Vince is saying in there, saying, I think Austin always says, you'll never wish your bike was any bigger. I, I believe he always says that. And, yeah, and I think there's, yeah. that's valid for a lot of occasions. But did you ever yeah. find it was too small? Uh, only once, really. What, what Austin says is, is when you're picking a bike up, you'll never, ever wish it was heavier than it is. Right. I think that's right. his that's, mantra. Yeah, and I, um, I think that, you know, you, you can't argue that. No, absolutely not. And I took good note of that. Um, the, uh, the one time I was wishing for more power was in New Zealand, actually, a small country. So I'm not talking about long open roads. I'm talking about when I was riding into a headwind, going up quite a long hill. And I was thinking, where's that extra five or six brake horsepower <laughs> that I really need to just not be dropping down from six gears to third to get up this hill against the wind? Right. And revving yes. it out like crazy and thinking you're torturing well, the bike. Yeah. Yes, I was, I was trying not to do that. But yeah, it was, was hard work a couple of times. So what, what I'm curious with this, though, is, is, you know, that bike choice seems so important to a lot of people when they're looking at a trip. How important is, is it to you now? Like you, when you think of a motorcycle, how important is the right motorcycle? Um, it's still very important. Um, but it's also a mixture of what's right and what's available. I'm disappointed these days that the Japanese haven't latched on to the idea of, you know, the, the mid-weight, mid-power uh, adventure-style bike. Um, and that's why my second bike was a CCM GP 450 Adventure, um, which didn't turn out to be as good as I hoped, really. Uh, but, you know, there we go. I drove it for 65,000 kilometres. The, the Suzuki did 92,000 K, uh, and it kind of expired if that's the right word in australia i think it's it's final hurrah was in the uh Inaminka desert which is kind of in the middle of the country i came off it and it got um you know so it was already bashed and crashed and then i was off the road for two months uh, recovering from some broken bones in my hand and when i went back to the bike i managed to set my luggage on fire and also the bike as well. So, so adventures you don't intend to have. So your your bike expired in Australia, and and incidentally, you almost expired in Australia as well. Uh, well, yeah, possibly, possibly, possibly. I think there's many Australians. We're going to take a short break so I can tell you about a couple of things here. But when we come back, things go terribly wrong for Jeff and the Australian Outback. Stay with us.
You know, you find in life that some things just work. Well, I tend to gravitate towards those things. You know, they just do their job. Well, that's Pearly's Possum Socks to me. As a matter of fact, if you told me five years ago that that now I would be getting excited about owning and wearing a pair of socks, I would have laughed at it. But ever since I met Duke Lambert, the owner of Pearly's Socks, when he first sent me his socks to try, I've been a fan. They're made using a blend of merino wool and possum fur. Now, I'd never even heard of this before I met Duke. And, you know, frankly, I, I wasn't that excited about it when I heard about it. It's when you wear them that you realize what it's all about. The socks are full, they're durable, they're soft, they're very warm. And you know what it's like with your feet. Once your feet get cold, good luck getting them warm again. Now, I even wear them in the summertime because they feel so good on my feet. And as an added bonus to the insulation value of the, of the possum fur and merino wool is plushness and comfort. Now, I've used merino wool for years. It's great. It wicks away moisture um, from your skin. It stays warm even when it's wet. And most importantly to me, a lot of times is it doesn't stink like most fibers do, you know, when you sweat in them after a while, especially wearing them in your boots. Well, this blend of merino wool and possum fur, that takes it to another level that I didn't even know was possible. Have a look for yourself. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com is a website. Duke is the owner. It's a family-owned business. So you're dealing with the people who own the company and, and care about you as a customer. Pearly'sPossumSocks.com. Don't forget to throw in there. You heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Now, if you're in front of your computer right now, don't do it if you're driving, obviously. Type in imsproducts.com. From the main page, click on foot pegs. Now, right there at that page, have a look at the Core Enduro and the Core Rally foot pegs. Now, look down at the ADV-1 and the ADV-2 foot pegs. What do you see? Well, the size is the obvious difference between them. But if you look at the teeth on the pegs, and if you aren't looking at them right now, I'll describe them to you. The core lineup have a sharper tooth pattern, whereas the ADV line have rounded teeth. Why the difference? Well, it's different riding styles. And this is really important. IMS puts that work into actually designing each foot peg individually, purposely. And that is what you get when you buy IMS products foot pegs. Incredibly well-designed pegs that are super tough, so tough that they warranty them for life. Do yourself a favor, have a look at IMS, get some quality pegs in your bike that allow you to get the most out of your riding skills. IMSproducts.com is a website. Make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. IMSproducts.com. Your, your bike expired in Australia and, and incidentally, you almost expired in Australia as well. Uh, well... Yeah, possibly. Possibly. There's a possibility of that. I yeah. think there's many Australians that would have said that. Yeah, you know, you were you were very lucky to have made it out. So, with this story, yeah, and this, there are, yeah. this is your 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 Australian adventure, the this, the real serious one. <laughs> Can you set that up? Yeah, I um, decided to ride what the, the Aussies call the old tele track, uh, which is the old telegraph track. There's a track that runs up Cape York, which is in the far northeast of Australia. And it was originally set up to maintain the first telegraph line that left Australia to go across to uh, Papua New Guinea, I think it went to, across the sea. Um, and they stopped using that track just after the Second World War, I think. And it just became an adventure trail. So I was riding up it. I met up with some some other people and some Aussies in their four by fours. We stuck around for a couple of days, and we we camped at this next to this uh, creek. Um, 
one of the few easy creek crossings on that trail. And I decided to go for a swim. And I obviously hadn't studied the map very well because what we'd stopped at a place called um, Fruit Bat Falls on, on the way up. And we were going to camp there, but we didn't. And the famous waterfalls on this uh, on this particular river. So, so let me let me just jump in here and, and just explain where this is. This is in the the northern part of Australia. As a matter of fact, northern, I guess, northeastern tip uh, of yep. Australia. A very remote place. Uh, the uh, Jardine River National Park. Very remote Correct. place, accessible by four by four. I think only. It's not something that um, people are are. Um, it's not something that's easy to get to. No, it's not. And that's a challenge. You know, this is the kind of adventure, if you like, I was looking for to be in the remote places. Um, on this particular day, the, the plan was to swim a couple of kilometres down this creek to these waterfalls and then walk back up the track, which we'd already driven up. And therefore, I knew to just be sandy. Now, why why swim? Well, we, we were camped next to a creek and I just thought, well, I'd swim down the creek have a look at the waterfalls and walk back up the track. It's just something to do for an afternoon. And it looked like a couple of kilometres down to the falls and a couple of kilometres walk back up. Hmm, so you're only talking a short adventure. So um, yeah. how do you do that? Well, <laughs> what I did, in fact, was to completely misread the map and not realise that we weren't on the main creek. We were on a side creek. So when I swam down the, the side creek, it joined the main creek, but I couldn't see that, that it had joined it. So, it was, you know, because of water level, with all the bush and the trees, you just can't see these things. So I ended up actually swimming down the main creek, the Jardine River, in the wrong direction. So I was never going to get to those falls. Um, so I decided the... Um, it was time to, it was getting late in the day, so I thought, well, I'll, I'll just walk back to the creek. So I tried to cross the bush. The sun was setting and, you know, there's a stupid thing. I was just thought, well, I'll follow the line of the sun, but it, to get to, uh, to, to the track, the track wasn't there. So you're swimming this river, and then what you do, yeah. you sort of know where you are. You know if you go backwards, you're going to recognize what you've done. At this point, yeah. you consciously made a decision to leave that spot and trek off making a making a beeline through the bush for the track why yeah what what, what made because you think I, you could do that well i i just thought the track was you know just off a bit to my to my right it would have been westwards um but because i hadn't realized exactly where i was the track wasn't there at all didn't it occur to you that that, it, that you might not get to the track did it run through your mind that hey it, this- it, it didn't occur to me at that point when i set off no because i was pretty sure i knew where the track was but, but I was wrong. Right. So you're certain. So in your mind, in your mind, you, you've got the, the map in your head. You yeah. know, you know where you are, you know where you're going. I, I knew where I was at that point in time. Yeah. No risk. But, well, no, but, right. but it turned out there was because I was wrong. I'd misremembered the map and I was actually heading into the bush completely in the wrong direction. The track wasn't there. Wow. Can, can you talk about the moment that you came, that you realized that the track is not there? Well, after um, an hour or so pushing through the bush, I realized, firstly, I realized that I was probably not going in a straight line. And also I didn't find the track. So 
clearly I realised it wasn't there. So luckily enough, I, I came across a stream and um, followed that stream and I came back down to a river, a river. Now, it turned out to be the one I'd left, but I wasn't sure of that at the time. There's a fair number of creeks around that area. Mm-hmm. So I turned around and swam back up this river in the in the opposite direction to that which I'd originally started. Um, and again, because of the, the, the bushes all around, I've, I, might, I might have seen the creek that I swam down, but it's now dark and is surrounded in bush. So I just kept swimming up. Um, I did come across some waterfalls, but they weren't the ones I was looking for. So I just laid up on the bank for the rest of the night until the sun came up. Now, Jeff, let me just ask here, because I think yep. to people who aren't um, uh, familiar with Australia, haven't visited Australia, what they do know about Australia is all the animals that are dangerous. And here you are mm. swimming up creeks. <laughs> and, and, you know, you hear these stories of crocs and freshwater crocs and things like that, not to mention all the other things that can get you. And then you decide to sleep on the beach. Can you, can you talk about that thought process, you know, that, the whole wildlife thing? Um, well, once I was up on the bank of, of the river, I wasn't worried about crocs. Um, so you were while you were it, swimming? No, maybe I should have been. Maybe I'm just, I, I think, I think I was just a, at that point in time, a brain dead foreign tourist who, who was, uh, who was too, um, unconcerned for his own safety. Um, what I discovered next day, because the next morning I, I, ha, I had a look around this waterfalls I was at for an access point and couldn't find one. Apparently there is one, but it's up a set of steps in the rocks that I didn't see. Had I found those steps, I would have got back on the track and I'd have been okay. Um, so I thought, well, I haven't found anything up here. I'll turn around and go back. And I, I now realised with the sun in the sky that this creek was running south to north the telegraph track runs south to north, and I was pretty convinced that at some point in time, if I kept swimming down the river, I'd come to a an access point between the two. Um, and I was right in that in that thought, but it was a long, long, long way away. Apparently, <laughs> I was told later. So I was swimming down swimming down the river. I swam past the entrance to the creek I'd originally swum down, Canal Creek. Again, I just couldn't see it there because of the bush. Um, I came across a, a sandbar where there's, you know, there's a lot of sand there, and that's where I wrote a help message in the sand, which is actually what saved me in the end. So at this point, uh, you, you're, you know, you're in trouble. Obviously, you understand this. I, I know by then, yeah, I'm in trouble. Yeah. yeah, but I was, I was still pretty sure I'd be okay because out in the bush, your biggest problem is lack of water. Now. I'm in a river, so so that problem is answered. Um, it wasn't cold, really. Um, I was swimming in the water. The water was warm. The weather's warm. I wasn't wearing. I was only wearing a t-shirt, and a pair of shorts, but you know it, it was enough. So I just kept swimming. I just thought, well, standing still doesn't do a lot. I had heard a helicopter hovering around. Um, and I presumed it was looking for me because I, I know the people who I was camping with would have been worried when I didn't arrive back. 
And what they had done was call the emergency services in the morning when, when I wasn't there. So because of that helicopter flying around, I thought, well, if I'll write this message in the sandbank in case the helicopter comes down this far. But in the meantime, I thought, well, I'll keep traveling down and in case I come across somewhere where I can kind of get back onto the track. Um, and in the end, the next day, I, I had a, I now knew where the track was in relation to the river. What I didn't know is how far apart they were. So in the afternoon, I went for another walk towards where the track was. I mean, I was pretty sure of my direction now. Um, but I didn't find it by the time it was dark. So another night up on the riverbank. And then I walked back to Jardine River because the obvious thing was um, I'd left a message hoping the helicopter would see it. If they did see it, it wouldn't be any good if I wasn't actually in the river. So I went back to the river and around lunchtime that day, the helicopter did indeed fly over and I was, uh, I was okay. So let me back up here. So you, you go in for a swim, you're going to swim to these, the waterfalls you left with, um, dressed how and, and prepared how? I had on a pair of swimming trunks, a pair of swimming shorts, uh, a t-shirt and a hat. And as far as you're concerned, the, you, you're not doing anything risky. You, you, you understand where no. you are, at least you think you do. No, I was, I was dressed, dressed perfectly for what I was planning to do, to a two-kilometer swim and a two-kilometer walk and, and in sand. When you decided to, to, to cut off through the bush, was that where things started to go wrong? Um, well, yes, because I didn't get anywhere near the track. I wasn't going to the track. And by the time I managed to find this little stream and um, to find myself back at the river, I realized, I realized that I knew then I was in trouble. Um, but, but I was still, by swimming back up the river, I was still hoping that I would find, uh, somewhere where I could, uh, get on to, um, or, or, or let's put it this way. Once I'd found those waterfalls, I thought I might be able to find an access point, although I didn't. So, yeah, I guess the next morning I, I knew I was, I was in trouble then. Yeah. So the waterfalls you're looking for, how do you know what they look like? Well, I'd seen a picture of oh, the I ones I was I was heading for, and I didn't actually find those waterfalls. I found some that were kind of further downstream. But, I mean, uh, that morning I was actually achieving what I'd set out to achieve. I'd found some waterfalls, and had I but known it, the track was right alongside them, but I just didn't know that. Mm. I didn't even know I was in the right creek now that, included the waterfalls I was looking for. So it was day two that you decided that you should write the message in the sand. Yeah, I was swimming past this sandbar. I'd almost swum past it and I thought, hang on a minute. I'd heard the helicopter. So I thought if I write, I wrote help and that day's date and an arrow pointing downstream. The idea being that if a helicopter saw it, they'd know where to go and look, which they did. Mm-hmm. Luckily, that that was that was sort of a, well, a bit of a fluke, wasn't it? Well, that, that was what well, was a kind of a plan. It's a little bit of a fluke. The helicopter saw the sign because they told me it was on the edge of their search area. But after that, the plan worked because knowing that I was further downstream from where I left the message, they came looking for me. 
So, so it's a plan that did kind of work. Mm-hmm. Well, well, it is what what got you found, isn't it? That if you had was, you not yeah, written that, no. they, it may not be. I mean, we might not be doing this interview right now. We might not be having this conversation <laughs> at all, right. Jim. I'm, I'm very aware of that <laughs> <laughs> because there's no one really in the area except for people who are exploring the park, right? That's correct. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. That was day two that you wrote in the sand. Correct. And and it was no, 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 no. It was day. Sorry, it was the. Yeah, it was day two, so it was after my first night out on the bank, and then it was the next day after my second night out in the bush that they found me. What was your first night like? Oh, lying up on the bank? Yeah. Just just lying lying there with the ants and um, everything and just not really sleeping. I was, I was just resting. Yeah. It's, um... So I just lay there until, until dawn came. Did you have that uh, that sort of panicked feeling that people get when they get lost? No. And I think uh, when I talk about it, it sounds blasé. Um, I know it does. I, In the back of my mind, I always had the thought, well, what if? But in the front of my mind, I felt if I take certain actions, which really was just swimming until I found somewhere where I could find the track, you know. So all the time I was taking some kind of positive action, I felt I'd be okay. You know what they say to do when you're lost normally is just to stay in one spot. Well, yes, and if I guess, I guess if I had, um, they would probably have found me quicker, I suppose, because... Or, or, or what, what else might have happened is some other people might have come down to the waterfalls that I slept next to. And, and then I would have known that, that I was um, somewhere near the track. Mm. I mean, hindsight's always twenty twenty. You can always look back and, <laughs> yeah, you know, and dissect and criticize what, you, what you've yeah. done. But it, uh, I mean, in the end, it worked uh, and everything turned out yes, fine. Did, yeah. did, yeah. did you go there on, in, on your motorcycle? Yeah, I was riding up this 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 old telly track. The idea it's a bit of a challenge, especially for a bike. I mean, it's because there's some river crossings that are very difficult, very tricky, and I probably would have needed other people's help to carry the bike across uh, at least one of them. Um, but yeah, so that was a plan to ride up to the tip of Cape York along the old telegraph track. I didn't I didn't do that in the end because after my little escapade. I was taken to uh, a nearby town and then I was given a lift by the police back out to the bike and um, I decided to, you know, curtail that trip up the track and I actually went up to York um, York Point by, by, by the proper road, if you like. There's two roads go up there. Well, there's a proper road, not not asphalted, no, um, no blacktop at all, just you know, mud and ruts, but um, it, it at least had bridges over the creeks, so so it was rideable. Because <laughs> when you when you went into camp, you'd met some other people, and they were in in four by fours, and, and you sort of I think you gave That's them your correct. luggage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That they they actually left. I mean, my tent, my luggage was was in my tent. The bike was okay. Some other people arrived, so they were sort of keeping an eye on things. So it was all okay. I mean, the, the thing is. There's a kind of code, if you like, under these circumstances. People aren't going to mess about with somebody else's gear. Mm-hmm. 
because the word is out that you were lost. Well, yeah, people knew by then, yeah, because the helicopters were around and the, um, what do they call the SEC, the Services Emergency people were were on the ground as well, um, kind of uh, directing operations and things like that. So, so yeah, it was a bit of an adventure for a couple of days, and I feel very, very foolish. I, I mean, I was foolish in in many ways, but um, yeah, it was all right in the end. <laughs> How many people were looking for you, the, the rescuers? Do you know? Uh, no, I, I don't know. There's a team of police. Um, some of these SEC people. I, I, don't, I don't know how many. There's obviously a helicopter pilot and a spotter. And um, it was actually them that saw me the second day. And then they called out the rescue services because they had to winch me up out of the river. Right, because at that point, you couldn't walk. I mean, I think what you'd said was the uh, the officer, I I believe his name's Brad, who came to to rescue, he was sort of coordinating the rescue uh, or the search yeah. rather, uh, the yes, search. And, and then when it got yeah. to the point of, of he's asking you, can you walk out? And you're telling him no. No, I couldn't. I was feeling quite exhausted by then. I was all right swimming. That's easy to do, especially um, when you're going downstream. Um, although my legs and feet were getting really battered, but he wanted me to walk back upstream and against the current and, um, over all the stones and everything else, I, I just wouldn't have been able to do it. You were, you were sort of toast at that point. Yeah, I was getting that way. Yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was convinced I could have get swimming for another, however long necessary, you know, or, or rest or whatever. <laughs> I, I was planning on how to catch fish for, uh, cause when, when I stopped for a rest, they'd come and swim around my feet. So I reckon if I could get one of those, I could, I could do a golem and eat some raw fish, you know, um, <laughs> perfectly doable. I've done it in Japan. So I, I knew I could live <laughs> off raw fish <laughs> and yeah. like I said, no end of water to drink. So, so I was just, um, and, and at that point the helicopter flew over. <laughs> yeah. And you had to be getting hungry and weak at this point. Was I strangely didn't feel very hungry, particularly, oh. um, and yeah, I was starting to feel weak. Yeah, for sure. So you you got your bike back. Luckily, I mean that, that's great that they they actually take you back up to to pick up your bike, etc. Yes, and, and get yeah, yourself exactly. out. How long was it after this uh, this uh, what that happened here with your rescue that your bike bit the dust? Oh, I um. That was, when did I arrive? 2015. So that was late July 2015. I think it was uh, about September, October 2016 that um, I decided it was time to send the Suzuki home and get something else. Oh, you shipped it home? Oh, yes, I did. Yeah, it's my precious. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Talking to Gollum, she is my precious. <laughs> well, when you said and, you, you, you caught on fire, I kind of thought, okay, at that point it was scrap. But guess- No, no. It, 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 what, what happened was, uh, again, I, I was in a rush. I did something foolish. My luggage worked loose. And instead of, when it worked loose, instead of moving across the, the, the luggage rack to the left, it, of course, moves across to the right where the exhaust is, the silencer is, and and that's what set the luggage on fire, and that set the back, the rear mudguard on fire as well. Mm. Um, so I managed to put that out, 
and then I rode the bike back to uh, Brisbane and I shipped it from there. From there. Then what do you do? You, do you buy a bike in Australia at that point? No, um, that was an option. I could have got a, um, a DRZ 400, which would have been a great bike to travel on. I still sell them in Oz. Um, but um, I was worried about crossing borders with a, a UK passport and an Australian registered bike. Um, so I, I don't, I, and I'd seen these um, GP, these CCM GP 450s, I'd seen the write-ups on them, and I thought, well, that's a good bike to have. And I, I kind of wanted one. It was a, a real desire to have one of those, and here was the excuse. Mm. So I, I went back in October 2016, shipped the bike back, and bought um, bought the CCM, did a preparation work on it, and then I shipped it out back out to Australia in March 2017. Yeah. So that gave me a five five month break back in the UK. I've seen the the CCM the, the 450 when it came out. I think it, the, you know there was a bit of a splash about it. I thought it looked like a really neat bike. I mean, it seemed like the right size. It was lightweight. Um, you know, up a little bit from the, the from the small bikes, the 250s and 350s. The yeah. 350s not that common now, but 250s. It seemed like a good choice. What what went wrong with it? What didn't impress you? Well, it, it it was unreliable, and the I didn't actually have problems with the engine as such, but it was always a little bit running on the edge it's the engine is or was originally made by kimco and it was sold to bmw uh husqvarna and husaberg to use in their enduro races and originally it was a 52 brake horsepower engine uh, which you had to change your oil after every race on this kind of thing mm -hmm. so ccm got a batch from bmw because bmw stopped making that particular model uh, and they detuned it, dropped it down to 40 brake horsepower, which, of course, increases the reliability and the oil change interval. Um, CCM claimed 5,000 miles oil change. Um, I didn't swallow that at all. I changed the oil at 5,000 kilometres. But the engine only holds 1.2 litres of oil, so it's not not a lot of oil, you know. Um and I had, a, I had a problem with a stator packed up after about 10,000 kilometres or there were 10,000 miles or kilometres, I forget which. Um, the fuel pump failed. Um, things that happened like the exhaust header pipe would split. So I, I, had, I, I had it replaced by CCM and then that one split. So I had it TIG welded in, in uh, Cambodia and um, and it's been all right since then. But, you know, other things, a mudguard stays would break and this kind of thing. And I just never felt as happy with that bike as I did with my Suzuki, even though it answered, it answered that extra five brake horsepower issue mm -hmm. that I felt I had in New Zealand, you know. So in that respect, it should have been perfect, but it wasn't. What are you using for luggage? Okay, I am on my third set of luggage. I had um, Ortlieb, is it Ortlieb or Ortlieb bicycle panniers, panniers first. Then I changed them for motorcycle panniers, Ortlieb motorcycle panniers. And then I got some of the Adventure Spec panniers. Um, and now I have 
panniers made in India that are really suitable for the uh, the Himalayan. They're made by a company in India called Invictus. And they also supply me with some front tank bags that are specific to the Himalayan as well. So when I eventually get the Himalayan back to the UK, I've got to decide what new bike I'm going to get. I've got half a mind to rebuild the Suzuki and use that again, actually. Well, hang so on, hang on. You, you jumped onto the Royal Enfield there. How did you get from, from the CCM to the Royal Enfield? Oh, okay, right. Well, when I got to India, the, the um, customs only allow you to keep a foreign vehicle in India for no more than six months. You can apply for an extension, but that wouldn't be more than another six months, so total a year. I wanted to be in India for probably um, sort of two, two and a half years. So what I decided to do was to send the CCM back to the UK and buy a, a, a local bike. And the obvious choice was the Himalayan, which is a adventure-style bike made by Royal Enfield. And how long have you ridden that? I've done 2,500 kilometres on that now. I bought it. I bought it in May last year when I was locked down in Lucknow. Um, I set off from there in the beginning of September. So between the beginning of September and the beginning of February, I covered 2,500 kilometres. So it's, I've had it up in the Ladakh region, up in the Himalayas, and it's handled that kind of travel very well indeed. So I'm very happy with it. I know one of the big assets for for the the Royal Enfield is the fact that it's ubiquitous. If you have a breakdown, it's not going to be a problem to find anybody who who can help you fix it and and get parts, etc. But but what about as a bike compared to the other two bikes? Does, does it ride and perform and and reliability is the same? Yeah, the um, I, I think you'd need a Royal Enfield dealer to fix a Himalayan because it's it's not common like the bullet. You know, anyone could fix a bullet. And this is electronic, everything on on the on the Himalayan fuel injection, everything. Yeah. Oh right, this is the this is the new version. This is the the thing. This is a new one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The, the, they yeah. also export over into North America as well, and I'm sure the UK. Yes, they do in the UK and Europe and everywhere. Yeah. yeah it's, it's got quite a good niche market, I think. Um, its failings. It has two main failings. It's a bit down on power. It only manages about 23, 24 brake horsepower, and it's heavy. Um, without fuel, it'd be 180 kilos, which to me is is heavy. Um, if they could improve the power and reduce a bit of weight, it'd be a, a, a great bike. But it's fine for India, Jim. This is the point. I'm using it where it was made to be used, and it rides very comfortably. It handles the, the dirt roads up there, you know, rocky dirt roads, very well. The power delivery is very gentle, unlike the CCM. That it could be a little bit, it's a bit on and off the throttle. The CCM, so it wasn't always so easy to ride, you know. But the, so the M feel is a big contrast in that respect. And you're looking to replace that now. I will ride the M feel back to the UK, so it's going to do me for the next two years or two and a half years, however long it takes me to get back. Um, and then my next continent is Africa. And I'm, again, I'm really going to need a bike I can pick up on my own. And that's especially the, the cases I now have a, a, a badly damaged left elbow, so I don't have the strength I used to have. Is that from riding or, or coming uh, off? <laughs> yeah, it's from coming off. Yeah, 
I was um, I, I was in Laos and I was run off the road by a truck that I was trying to overtake mm. and smashed up my elbow. Uh, and, and that's a permanent damage, a permanent damage you have now. Pretty much, yeah. It's got it's got plates in it and everything, and um, it just hasn't got the strength anymore it used to have. The the Royal Enfield is there is there um is there something about the the ride being what it is? You know what I mean? Like it's, it's got sort of a classic look to it. Does that come into it at all for you? It's it's a closer type of bike to my Suzuki than it is to the CCM. Uh, the CCM is a little bit of a, you could think of it as a bit of a prancing pony. Um, so you need to learn to, to ride it a bit, although it's very capable. Uh, the Himalayan is back to being just an, a fairly ordinary horse, but with a bit of extra equipment, you know, tougher suspension, higher bars and that kind of thing that make it good for off, for off road as well. Mm. And you like it? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yes, I do. I do. But like I say, fortunately in India, you know, when, when you drop it, there's always a crowd of people around to help you pick it up. They'll rush over and help you pick it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> even when I managed to drop it up in the Himalayas, there's been people around. I managed to drop it where there's other people. Uh, and the roads up in the Himalayas are surprisingly well used. So even if there weren't people around, there would be someone would come along fairly soon, you know. Um so, yes, it's a very capable bike for that country. But I think, like I say, for for sandy places where I know it's going to be dropped fairly often, I'd want something lighter for sure. Well, that, that's actually some good information. So if anyone who's worried about their bike being too big to ride or too big to pick up, if they drop it somewhere, just ride in India and you're, and you're all set. Well, <laughs> yeah, or, or anywhere, anywhere in Asia, Jim, everywhere is in Asia is crowded. So anywhere somebody. you go, yeah, there'll always be someone to help you pick it up. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, you just said about um, having a, a get off there and you're trying to overtake the, the truck and you, and it sort of runs you off the road. What are you doing for medical insurance? Like you're 69 years old now and everyone talks about medical insurance becoming, I think it's 70 that where they're saying that it becomes very difficult to get medical travel insurance. But what do you, what do, you do for that? Well, I've used various companies. Um, I made a few claims as well. I mean, I made, I made um, one, two, two claims in Australia because I had two accidents over there. Uh, the medical system there is very good, um, but you, you do need insurance for, for, for various things. Um, in Laos, I was using a, a company called STA Travel, which is based in the UK, and they're very good, and they're happy to insure people over 70. They're also happy to, to do long-term. You know, I had a, an 18-month policy, which is, again, is something that's not always easy to get. So that is one of the things, if you're planning to go on a long trip, uh, that's something you need to dig into, especially as you're saying, if you're an old fart like I am. <laughs> well, it, things, it costs that up. I and mean, we, we talked about the rescue that you had in Australia. And I, I, I read that those rescues can go up to $1.5 million. And I think one of the newspaper articles, because there were some newspaper articles about your adventure <laughs> that you had there, they had said something up around 800000 But I think you you sat and talked with uh, Brad, the guy who organized the thing. And I think you guys kind of came up with more like 200000 which is still... Huge. Yeah, well, well, no, what what it actually was, was it was, when I was talking to Brad, we came up with a figure of about 800,000. It was me that 
quoted that figure. Uh-huh. Now, I got flamed a little bit for that. Um, I was talking to a, a friend of mine in um, in Brisbane who was in the police, and he said, no, it wouldn't be anything like that. He said it probably more like 200,000. So that's the amount I quote now. However, they they don't claim it back off you. It's it's like in, you know, I, I don't know how it is in Canada, but in the UK, if you get in trouble, you get rescued and it won't, it won't cost you anything. Yeah, it's the same thing in, in Canada. You get rescued. Yeah. It's not going to cost you anything. There, I think there's yeah. always the threat that you, that, uh, as, as far as, for, for a foreigner, I'm not sure now, but I've never heard of anyone getting charged for any sort of rescue in Canada. And, and you know, that's the big, uh, the argument or the debate with this is because I think you'll many t- find many times non-adventurers will say, well, these people should pay for it themselves. Whereas um, people who go out and do things will say, well, that's that's not fair because, I mean, what seems crazy to you is, is well within my normal normal daily routine. And um, so, so it's a tough one. Well, yes, I understand that. How, how far down do you bring it? I mean, where do you draw the line coming down from, from what you might think of, of as high-risk activities down to just simple things like, well, if, if, you, if you come off the sidewalk and walk across a field and you trip and twist your ankle – you should pay for that because mm. you didn't stay on the sidewalk. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. It, that, that, it, it could get ridiculous, yeah, couldn't it? it? It's you. You can't. You you. There there is no delineation, no easy one to find. No, um, exactly. Where you can say where everyone will agree on at all, because it depends no. on your own level of, of fear and your own level. Um, not even not even fear. It, it's it's your, your own abilities. What it comes down to as well, because that's why I was asking you about. Because if you read the story or you hear you tell the story now, and you hear this guy left with bare feet, short and a t-shirt and a hat. Uh, I mean, how stupid is that, right? Like, I mean, you know, yeah. you're you're into the Australian bush. But the thing is, that was well within your your routine of what you do, what you feel comfortable well, with. I can tell the way it, you say it. it. Yeah, the, the clothing was was perfectly all right for what I planned to do. Mm-hmm. And, and just how much, I mean, you, you don't go swimming carrying a pair of shoes that are suitable for bushwalking, do you? No. No. Well, I mean, you, you could get those uh, 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 Tevas, those, those sort of, which, which kind of doubles both. They're quite good. I use them for swimming and walking uh-huh. as well, Okay, which is yeah. handy. But sorry, I didn't mean to, <laughs> to ruin no. your point there. But, <laughs> trying to but, sell me something here, are you, Jim? <laughs> <laughs> and no sponsorship on that. Uh, but but no, what and, and what, what drew us back to this was I was saying about the cost of things because medical expenses, you know, you come off in a foreign country and, you know, we've talked about this many times on this show about how yeah. the, the prices yeah. can go through the roof, depending on how bad it is. I mean, yeah. it could be it could yeah. be devastating yeah. yeah well i was um when i had my accident in laos and that that i was flown to uh to bangkok for the repair uh very complex and the the total cost of the repair and the hospital stay and everything else was something like about twenty five thousand pounds wow so what that is in Canadian dollars, I don't know, probably another 50% on top of that, I mm-hmm. guess. Yeah, something too like much. that. Yeah, so um, I was very pleased with the insurance company until um, last year when I got locked down. They, I, I was going to extend the insurance because it ran out, it's due to run out in July last year and I was stuck there. And, and, and they turned around and said, you should have flown home from India. We're not prepared to to um, c- carry on with the insurance to extend it. 
because of COVID and you should have flown home. And they said, you should have flown home in March when, you know, when the world went into COVID lockdown. And, and this is in July. And they said, as far as we're concerned, we're not going to um, cover any claim that you happen to make from July the, sorry, from March the 17th. Ooh. And this is in July. So I said, well, in that case, I want four months refund. Oh, no, you can't have that. So I had a big argument with them, but they didn't give me any money back. So that, that was um, STA Travel, and they use Alliance Insurance Company. So what I've now done is I've gone to an insurance company, a French one called AV, AVI, and they sell their insurance under the banner of Europe Assist. So that's who I'm insured with now, and they, they're happy to, to extend insurance on the run, which they've already done once for me. Um, and the other good thing, of course, not being, uh, uh, UK based is they're not in the slightest bit interested about the, what the, uh, the British foreign office might say regarding any destination you choose to go to, because uh-huh. a UK based insurance will say, if the foreign office says you shouldn't be going there and you go there and something happens, we're not going to cover you. Right. And that could really throw a wrench into things. Now, do you check that ahead of time? Did you, when you were with the other company, did you look at their list and see what was okay to go into and what country was not? Um, I didn't because I knew I wasn't going into a country that that was at risk, you know, somewhere like, uh, I I do hope to be able to ride back uh, when I leave India, go through Pakistan, and then I hope Afghanistan. Now, I can't, can't imagine for a single second that that is not on there list that says don't go yeah (laughs) so um we'll see about that closer to the time with avi in france the the insurance company they're not worried about covid they don't have any restrictions on that no they all they said was um when you insure we will not cover covid for 15 days after that covid is okay then they're going to cover you Wow. Yeah, they're covering me now. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, I mean, all, all if you was, get COVID, like if you get COVID, they're not covering you for the first 15 days and no, then after that? For, yeah, that was because I was already in, in India when I took out the insurance. Oh, so you mean said, the first well, 15 days of your policy? I thought you were saying if you oh, got policy, COVID. Yeah. Oh, oh, no, no, no. Sorry, sorry. Yeah, misunderstanding there. Yeah, no. no, the 15 days of the policy, they wouldn't cover me after that. Yeah, no problem. Right. And that's pretty standard for, for insurance, for, for those that's sorts of things. Is, yeah. It's like if you buy, you know, um, like a road assist, that sort of thing. I mean, you can't phone them up and get the insurance and then say to them, oh, wait, before you hang up, I need help right now. <laughs> because Well, it's, it's no, it, it was only related to COVID. If I'd, um, if I'd bought that and uh, crashed my bike the next day, they would have covered that. But if, I, if, if I'd bought it and, bought, and caught COVID within that 15 days, then they wouldn't have covered it. I see. Right. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that, that there there are insurance companies out there that are covering people to travel um, while while we have this pandemic going on. And and that brings me to another question now. So traveling during the pandemic, how do you feel about that? I mean, I know obviously you want to. Yes, I do. I'm very keen to get back to India. I think I said at the beginning, they've just, um, I was just reading, they just stopped all international flights in and out of India, which was, which was the situation a, a, a year ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they had been allowing them, obviously, because I flew back to to London right. in February. Um, but no, no, they stopped it now. So I don't know when they will lift that block. They've also closed all the land borders, which had been slowly opening. 
Um, so, yeah, I, I'm, I'm waiting to see what happens. Well, what about the whole COVID thing, though? What about the thought of having to deal with it on the road? How do you deal with it on the road? And, and, and does that not concern you? Um, I wear a mask whenever I walk around, you know, I mean, for the whole time that COVID has been uh, in existence, I was in India, um, you know, for, for 12 months, um, almost 12 months. And I just wore a mask. I didn't go out much. I, I Initially, I was staying in a hostel and the guys there said, don't go out, don't go out because the police will arrest you and I'll put you in a quarantine hotel and all this kind of thing. But that relaxed. India slowly unlocked. The state borders opened and then I so I was free to travel. The only thing that happened was where I crossed from one state to another. In two or three instances, I had to have a COVID test, but which they did at the border for free. Um, so, so it's easy in India, but of course now, well, who knows? We're just going to wait and see different countries will open up. Um, and we just have to wait and see what happens. But as far as the risk and, uh, you know, you're willing to sort of yep. accept that as, as part of. Yes. That's the- yes. I, I, I've now had both of my jabs, my AstraZeneca jabs uh, are swimming around my body. Um, no so the risk clot. is reduced. <laughs> not so far. Because that is, that's the big concern right now here. They have it here and, and, and the blood clot yeah, thing know, has us all worried about it. But look, Jim, if, if everything suddenly goes silent and you can't raise me, well, you know, call an ambulance. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> then it may well be that. Is part of that because, like due to your age and, and, you, and the way you look at life? Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not fussed. I mean, look, I, I've had... I, I had a bad accident when I was 18 years old and they reckoned I nearly died. Um, and, and, you know, I got through that okay. And other things have happened. I've had, I've had accidents here and there on, on the bike, of course, and, in the, and uh, one bad one in a car, but I wasn't injured. So I'm quite fatalistic about these things, Jim, and the same for COVID. I, I take avoiding action. Uh, as much as I can and, and will continue to do so. But, um, you know, and now I've had the jab, I feel reasonably secure against serious illness or death from COVID. So, uh, yeah, I'm just going to let it happen, really. All these stories you're, you're sort of throwing in, you're peppering in about um, crashes and things like, you're starting to sound like <laughs> Sam Manicom. <laughs> That's something we always rip well, Sam about. Yeah, see, well, I've kind of done what Sam did, but I did it. I did it piecemeal. I have actually, I have actually had a total of twenty-four separate fractures in Come my life. Come on, 24? 20, 24, 22 of which were motorcycle-related. Wow! And now some some of those were double fractures. So I had a double fracture of my jaw when I was back when I was eighteen that I mentioned, and back in two thousand thirteen, I had a double fracture of my tibia. But yeah, all, all the others, I mean, ribs and, and, and knuckles and things like that, you know, you, you can, you can actually get qu- quite a high score from only one accident if you want. <laughs> <laughs> so have you thought of taking riding lessons at any point? <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I, I believe in suck it and see. <laughs> right, right. So is there any sort of pattern to where these accidents have happened or these, these get-offs have happened? No, um, 
the one I had at 18 was someone else's fault. I had another one. Well, oh, that was motorcycle related uh, as well, 18? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The one at 18. Yeah, yeah. I broke my femur and, my, and broke my jaw in two places. Yeah. So. Is that what they did? They put but it in front of you? Uh, yeah. Basically, yeah. a guy came out of a side turning and then went along a, a 50 yards or something and, and turned right into another turning. So I was... Because he pulled out in front of me, I was going past him, and he turned across me. Right, the classic so, move. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, classic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, they've been off off road. The, the, all the recent ones. I mean, I broke a collarbone in Australia, which needed pinning together, and then I broke three um, three knuckles and a and a little finger in another accident. That was the one I mentioned in the Inaminka Desert. Um, and, um, yeah, so they've all been remote. <laughs> and, uh, I've got the far-flung places to have my breakages. <laughs> so when it comes to riding in these remote places, which you're obviously attracted to, and I know you are, what do you do to, to um, mitigate uh, problems and maybe to assist yourself if you happen to need rescue? Nothing. Sorry, I don't, I don't maybe I should ask a, that question again because I think yeah, you said nothing I, there. <laughs> I said nothing. I, I don't carry a. I don't carry a spot tracker. You don't. Or, or, or no. Why? No. no. Um. Well, partly it's experience. So far, I've been okay, and I know you could say, well, the next time I might not be. Um, the other thing is one more thing to to kind of look after, uh, it, it's for that reason that I don't do video or, or anything like that. Um, and I don't know, it's just something in me that says, you'll be all right, Jeff, you know, you'll be okay. The world's going to look after you. So half the people listening to you are going to go, yeah, I'll do that. And the other half are going to go, you stupid fool. <laughs> Considering how much or how little something like a tracker costs and how little it costs you know, per month for, to, to pay for it and yeah. so on and so forth. Why on earth don't you do it? And, yeah, I could ask myself that question and say, well, why don't I do it? You know, perhaps I will sometime. But so far, I haven't. I've, it's what I had in my mind. I had a crazy idea in my mind when I, before I set off, that I'd set off on my bike, I'd go and visit the whole world and then come back again. That was – now, the family weren't going to stand that, obviously. So I, I made, you know, regular visits back home. Um, but the same kind of thinking had me saying, well, this is an adventure, so I'm going to have an adventure. And I have, I have had a few and have got away with it, really, haven't I? Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue that. I mean, but you buy insurance, you buy medical insurance. So the tracker oh. is just sort of like another piece of insurance. And, yes, it is. Yeah, and really, the tracker and, and, and no, this doesn't does is not going to bode well with you. But the, the tracker also helps the people who are stuck looking for you. So, in other words, in in Australia, had you pressed that tracker, it would have been sort of a no brainer. You know, they know where you are, and now yeah. they just they execute the rescue rather than the whole search procedure, which is uh, yes, usually the right. big part yeah. of the expense. Yes, it, it would have been, and, and you're absolutely right. So I was being irresponsible. No, and I'm not say, saying that. I was just going to say, sorry, Jeff, I, I'm not saying you're <laughs> irresponsible because we all make our own choices and you can do yeah, all, sure. you could do a sat phone and everything. I'm just sort of curious of your thought process. Mm. Well, I guess my thought process is that 
I'm a bit of a chancer, you know, I'll take a chance on things. Um, like I say, a, a bit irresponsible, I suppose. But I just wanted to kind of test myself against the world in, in some kind of small way. Um, and, yeah, I guess that's really all it is. I just wanted to, just to see what happened and see how I cope with it. I wasn't planning to have accidents. I wasn't planning to get lost. I wanted a smooth ride everywhere. I wanted to, um, you know, ride across the Australian outback or or across wherever and, and everything, for everything to be okay. It hasn't always worked out that way, but that's what I was looking for. And, and the test, I guess, is just to to see how you cope with these things mentally as much as anything. And to my way of thinking, I've mentally I've coped very well. Do you feel like you're pushing the limit at times? Sometimes, sometimes, yeah. But I wanted to do that. I mean, my you haven't asked me the question that I often get asked yet, which is, which is my favorite country that I've been to so far? And, and the answer is Mongolia. And, and that is simply because Mongolia is so big and open and desolate and empty of people that I, I absolutely loved it. And it's the kind of place, what I discovered was that you can wander across the country without bothering with any tracks if you wish to. And in fact, sometimes I had to because um, I didn't have any Garmin maps for, for, for Mongolia. I didn't actually, I hadn't discovered the, um, you know, the open source maps website at that point in time. So I just had a paper map. Mongolia is a bit of a trackless waste gym, to be honest, you know. And you, you ride out along some tracks thinking, I'm following the compass on my uh, on my GPS, and you think this track's taking you in the right way, and then it curves away from where you want to go, or it stops at a herd of summer camp, and, and you think, well, where do I go now? Well, um, initially, I would turn back and try and find another way. But what I realised was that I could just simply carry on riding because there's nothing to stop you. So you just ride across the, um, you know, the, the tundra, as, as it were, over the hills, um, along riverbeds or wherever the compass suggests you need to go until you find another track. That's and I just fell in love with that idea. A true adventure, really. Well, it kind of is, but, you know, you're always going to get somewhere. Um, I got sort of nearly stuck in the Gobi Desert at one point, but I got myself out. I had to dig myself out of a sand dune at one point. You know, the, the, the track I'd followed had kind of petered out and I was actually ended up following a, a single wheel track made by a motorbike sometime previously, I don't know when, that just kind of wandered across these sand dunes. So I followed it, got stuck. You know, I had to dig myself out and managed to, managed to get up this dune and then in the distance I could see a... a a bigger track slowly forming in the sand. So I headed for that and got myself out of it, you know, and uh, I just loved doing that. I just loved it. Have you always had a positive attitude? Like would, would your friends describe you as that type of guy? You know, he's a happy-go-lucky guy. He always thinks everything's going to work out fine. Yeah, yes, yes, I, I, I guess so, yeah. Yeah, I, I think I probably developed this attitude after the accident I had when I was 18. You know, I kind of maybe unconsciously realized, well, I survived that. It was a bad one. I survived it. 
Um, you know, what else can life do to me? And just, so I just get out there and live it, you know, but I wasn't, I didn't used to do anything else prior to this adventure, such as, you know, I didn't go mountain climbing or, or, you know, uh, skiing or anything like that. I was just, I guess I, I saved up all my adventurousness for the, for the big bike trip. <laughs> <laughs> when you're doing something that's really out there, how high up of risk do you think it is? Like, say, let's say, let's say one to five, five being the the highest risk that you would do. How high up are some of these things? The, the biggest ones, three and a half to four, really. I don't feel I'm anywhere near a five, to be honest. I mean, what you know, when when you think about it, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, of, of an example that would be a five. Um, I don't know. There's there's some certainly some unsafe places that you would. I mean, okay, th- this would be a five. I'd like to cross Afghanistan. There is a um, a valley called the Wakan, I think, corridor that goes from Tajikistan into Afghanistan. So, wouldn't it be great to to enter Afghanistan into the mountain range? Um, at a point where I could cross the mountains uh, where there's no trails and meet and find that, that corridor and get to Tajikistan that way, that would be really, really out there and it would be probably completely undoable. But that's a five. Maybe that's a five and a half because it's so ridiculous. <laughs> What's the but, risk? Well, the risk of that would be um, probably there's no tracks or maybe only goat tracks or, or tribal tracks and the risk would be um, – getting shot possibly or falling off a cliff and dying, you know, that'd be that kind of risk. And so I wouldn't entertain that. Being taken might be worse than being shot. Well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It, it could well be. Um, but I, I would happily run the risk of whatever risk there might be of crossing Afghanistan. You know, most people would throw their hands up in horror. You know, you know the Taliban, they kill people mm-hmm. that might get kidnapped, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah, okay, I'll take that risk. Just to say I've done it, really. You know what, the reason I ask you that is because it's, it shows your mindset. You know, you're not, you feel you're not pushing it to, the, to the, the limit. And the thing is, you could sort of equate this to, I don't know, uh, say somebody rides motorcycles, for instance. So somebody rides a lot of off-road stuff. They will do things that are extreme to some people. But if you're the person yeah. doing it, it's not so extreme. No, 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 I, yeah. I can do this. It's not a problem at all. I'm very comfortable. Yet the risk is still there. If if the bike, you know, if, if something goes wrong and, and the person rolls down the hill, they may end up injured just like the the other person would. So the risk is still there, but there's a certain skill level and confidence that you you have that everybody has a different level of. And and that's what I was looking at with you. Is you you, you don't feel you're you're being crazy or reckless. No, but um, I mean, within the scope of what you were talking about, I'm not that skillful a rider, and I'm I'm careful. I don't go I don't go tearing around these mountain roads, um, relying on my skill to get me around the bends. I mean, you know, some of them are pretty damn dangerous. Mm-hmm. So I, I am interested in seeing my kids again, you know. Um, but but getting out into the wild places, there's there's roads out there, there's tracks out there. I mean, even when I was in Mongolia, Jim, I knew I'd come across another track after 10 or 12 or 15 kilometres of, of crossing the countryside. So to me, that wasn't a big risk. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and it's just, it's a kind of, all right, maybe I've been riding my luck in some respects, perhaps, but at the same time, 
I don't think so. I think I'm just just having a good time, really. And to me, you, you've got to try some some things that that push your skills and or push your your willingness. Let's put it that way. Push your own safety bubble a bit. Otherwise, it's not an adventure, is it? No, this is this is true. I mean, you could look at it that way. Going back to that that um, incident in Australia where you had to get rescued, though, had you not been with other people, there would have been no one to set off the alarm for you. That's correct. But had I not been with other people, I wouldn't have done it in the first place. Hmm. So it was only because these guys decided to camp up for a couple of days, and I thought, well, okay, I'll I'll stick with them. They said, you know, stick around, Jeff. So I did, and I was at a loose end that afternoon. Um, that was why I, I did it. So had I not been with them, it wouldn't have happened at all. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't have had all this notoriety, so, <laughs> which, which I'm not too sure whether I, whether I, I want or not, to be honest. You, you mean for that incident in particular? Yeah, because yeah. of that incident, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know. It's, it's one of those things. It's interesting to talk about, but there's so many different opinions out there, uh, the different ways to look at it, that um, yeah, mm. you, you never know what you're going to land on. Hey, correct. Yeah, you, you've been to you've been to a lot of countries now. You you mentioned you're going to Africa. Have you been to North America and South America? Not on not on a motorcycle. I have visited. Um, never been to South America. I've been in the North America for kind of trips for other reasons and and uh, a couple of holidays and things. Um, I I have been to Africa. Um, in when we decided to do this trip in two thousand and eight. I thought, well, this is a good excuse to do some of these um, kind of managed adventure rides that, that you can go on uh, and and test test myself for being an A, being in, in outlandish places and B, to check my taste for being in, in very foreign places as well. Because I was pretty confident I'd be okay with that. But you never really know. Like I said, it's a good excuse. So... I, I joined a tour that uh, we rode from the Gambia up to um, back up to Morocco and back into Spain. So that was a five-country trip, basically up through the Western Sahara. That was good fun. Um, it wasn't too challenging because that road now, that coast road, is now all um, blacktop. So mm-hmm. it's not not the challenge it used to be. Um, but yes, it was it was great fun. At the start, you uh, you described yourself as a, as a blogger. That was one of the things that you, that you said uh, that you are. And, and I do remember seeing something. It was early on in your in your travels. I, I think you'd met a, a woman. Uh, I believe it was in, in Russia. You correct me if if I'm wrong with that. But anyway, she was sort of berating you for sitting inside and and, and said, you know, you should be you should be outside, etc. And you said, okay, let's go for a walk right now. And and you went for a walk. And that, and you said it was a pleasant change from staring at four walls and a computer screen. And I got got to thinking about that and thinking, well, how much time do you, do you spend blogging? Is blogging that big of a part of what you're doing? Um, it is, and people often describe it as a travelogue because I do uh, try and write about the places I've visited and their history and the history of the buildings I see and and that kind of thing, as as well as generally describing you know, the area and, and the country. Um, so I try and make it informative, but also write about the people I've met and the things I've done and the things that have happened to me. And I don't I don't kind of um, hide anything really. You know, I've written about my accidents and some of the 
utterly stupid things I've done on the way, not just getting lost in, in Australia. Now, we all do foolish things and, and, and we curse ourselves for doing them, but I've written about those as well. So I try and make it a story of my journey and also uh, where I've been. And, yeah, it does take time. I mean, I need to sit down really for a couple of days and do it. And I do it about every month, roughly, to try and catch up. But my blog is invariably about three months behind the events that I describe. Mm. So you're doing it about once a month. So that, that's not spending that that much. That's the, in other words, it's not interrupting your daily routine, so to speak. Not, not so much, no. But I do sometimes have to sit down and just concentrate and get on with it. You know, it, it is a bit of a job. And occasionally I feel, you know, when, when I'm saying to myself, come on, Jeff, you must get the next blog written. You know, you've got lots to write about. You must get it done. And it feels like a bit of a monkey on my back until I sit down and start doing it. And then it, 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 it goes okay. And then I'm pleased to have, to have got it done. I've got it out there. The blog gets quite a lot of views. And, um, you know, I get some comments back and, and positive comments. And so I'm always happy about that. What do you get from writing the blog, though? Is it just those comments? Just those comments, yeah. And the number of views, you know, that's, that's what makes me feel good about doing it. Um, really, I, I do it for myself and, and just the people who might be interested in following it. At the end of the day, the end of each day, what makes you happy? Uh, well, many things do, but mostly with regard to the traveling, it's just heading to somewhere else, uh, maybe with a bit of a plan to see some things, um, and, you know, knowing I'll meet some great people, nice weather. I love, obviously we all like to ride in the sunshine. Um, I've ridden in a lot of rain as well, of course, especially in India it can be quite wet, but just just traveling, Jim, just, just being out there. I like to talk about it. If people want to talk to me about what I've done or, or read my blog where I've written about what I've done, then I'm very happy about that as well. Well, I would encourage everyone to check out your, your blog at motopangea.com. We're going to put a link in, in the show notes to that. But before I let you go, Jeff, and I know we could talk for a long, long time, and I have the feeling we're going to talk again because you have a lot more adventures coming okay, up. Thanks. But um, I look forward to that. Before I let you go, though, what do you have for, for the person that's considering trips, thinking about trips? What advice would you give? Well, I've been interviewed a, f uh, a few times in India and everyone in India wants to make a video log, you know, a vlog. So I've done a couple of those. And my advice to those guys is always, because they're mostly young looking at it, I say to them, if you're thinking of going traveling when you get to my kind of age, number one thing, look after your health. I'm, I'm fortunate, I'm genetically fortunate, I think. I don't have any heart problems. I'm slim. Um, so I've got, I've got good health. And, and that, to me, I feel that helps a lot. It's, it's one less burden to, to have to deal with. Um, and the other thing I'd say is, is you don't have to wait for the big adventure. I mean, every trip you make to somewhere you've never been is an adventure. So just go out, you know, if you can get a long weekend, go and ride your bike somewhere you've never been before. And, and in the UK, of course, you can, you can go into Europe a little less easily now since 
since the appalling Brexit. But, um, you know, you can still take your bike across the channel, explore a bit of France or wherever. Just get out there and do something. Don't wait. Go and do it as soon as you can, even if it's just small trips. And what about when it comes to pushing the limit? Because you mentioned that pushing the limit is really where the adventure is. It depends on your limit. So just think about what your limit is. Just look at look at some things people other people have done. Look at some things you feel like doing yourself. Look at some places that you think will be a bit challenging. I mean, I guess for a European rider, going to Russia is a bit of a challenge. It's 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 a slight physical challenge, not a big one, but it's a bit of a mental challenge because Russia is other. You know, it's it's somewhere else that used to be the enemy. And to anyone of, of, sort of mid, middle, sort of 40s or whatever onwards, Russia used to be the the enemy. So going there would feel very different. Um, even going into Eastern Europe would feel different to many uh, Europeans. So um, just, just look at what you think is going to be different for you, a bit of a challenge, and take it on. And then I think the... The level of the challenge you're prepared to accept will will rise every time you succeed in one challenge, then the next challenge is a, a bit more challenging. Jeff, it was great to get part of your story and I really enjoyed spending time with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jim. It's been great fun. Thank you. was Jeff Keyes from his home in the UK while waiting for a flight to reunite him with his bike and adventure in India. Jeff's blog is motopangea.com and we have a link to his site in the show notes along with some great photos that Jeff uh, has given to us as well. All on our website in the show notes for this episode on adventureriderradio.com. I just want to remind you that this episode has been brought to you by Green Chili Adventure Gear, greenchiliadv.com, Motobreeze Chain Oiler at motobreeze.com, and Best Rest Products at cyclepump.com. And we'd really appreciate it anytime you're dealing with these companies, anytime, email or otherwise, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks, of course, to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, the listener. Thank you very much for being a part of this. Now, don't forget, we have another show called ARR Raw. It comes out once a month. You need to subscribe separately for that, and like Adventure Rider Radio, you can find it anywhere podcasts are found. And if you haven't done it already, we would love to get a five-star review from you on iTunes or wherever it is you find your podcast. Now it's time to get out there and ride your bike if you can. My name's Jim Martin. Thank Thank you very much for being a part of this. I'll talk to you next week. I'm Jimmy Lewis, and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. (laughs) 